0: This is the waves. This This is 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 the waves. This is the waves. This is the waves. This is the waves. This is the waves.
1: Welcome to the waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and swim caps. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the things we can't get off our minds. And today, you got me, Amira Rose Davis, a professor at Penn State and co-host of the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down.
2: And me, Rebecca Schumann, a gymnastics writer for Slate.
1: So the Olympics are finally here. After a year of postponement, and despite lingering COVID concerns, they are off and running, or swimming, or jumping, or whatever. The IOC is very proud to announce that this is the most gendered balanced games ever. And so far, the women of the Olympics have certainly been showstoppers, from traditional powerhouse events like swimming, to new competitions like skateboarding, where teenage girls swept the medal stand. The collective age, I think, was 42. The Olympic women are not just showing up, however, they are speaking out. Because these so-called gendered balance games are still teetering with inequities. From the fight by nursing mothers to bring their children to Tokyo, to swim cap bands or handball uniforms. So what's the real story about gender at the Olympic Games? As a historian who researches women athletes in the Olympics, I've been asking myself that question for years. But one of the reasons I'm so interested in talking about this is because I'm also very conflicted and ambivalent about the Olympics themselves. And I love to work through those complexities and contradictions. I like mess. I'm still sobbing at fencing at three in the morning, but I'm always thinking about how to square that with systemic racism and sexism that seems seemingly as inextinguishable as the Olympic flame itself. I recently chatted with some of the Black women on Team USA about these contradictions and messy, muddled pandemic games. You can check that out over on Slate right now. But I'm interested in now having this conversation with you, Rebecca, and all of you at The Waves, from athletes to fans to casual observers or fervent armchair Olympic coaches. How do we reconcile the seeming gap between gender balance and happiness and some of the issues that have come up in these Olympic Games? Rebecca, why do you want to talk about this?
2: This is a topic I can't stop thinking about because every four years, when the rest of the world gets briefly interested in gymnastics, I'm obsessed always. It's an affliction. I understand that. I hear a lot of the same things about why are the quote unquote girls so muscular and graceless now? Why is floor exercise all tumbling and weird leaps? What happened to the dance? What happened to the graceful days of Olga Korbut and Nadia Comaneci? Listen, if that's how casual viewers react to the most gender-balanced Olympics ever, I hesitate to ask what a sexist one would do to them. And also, what people don't realize when they say this is that Olga and Nadia were themselves huge rebels against the gymnastics aesthetic of their times. The International Gymnastics Federation didn't want them doing all those new flips. Corbett's saltos on balance beam and uneven bars were almost banned because they were considered too dangerous and not proper to women's gymnastics. Just as nostalgia always does, nostalgia for the good old days of gymnastics opens a decidedly ungraceful, racist and sexist can of worms and reveals decades, really a century, of conditioned misogyny and bigotry.
1: So what we're saying is none of this is new. The gap between Olympic ideals and realities has always been vast. And today we will stand in that gap to talk about gender, race, and the Olympic Games. Has it always been like this? Spoiler, yes. But what is happening now and where do we go from here? Coming up on the show, we chart some of the history of women at the Olympics, consider the lingering issues at the Games, of which there are many, and then we will later ask what change is possible. That's all coming up next on The Waves. The Waves.
0: So, it's been
1: claimed that this is the greatest, most equalist games ever. It's true,
2: Amira. The International Olympic Committee has congratulated itself a lot for putting on, quote, the most gender-equal games yet, because a full, wait for it, 49% of represented athletes are women. Well, the new head of the Tokyo Olympics Organizing Committee has launched a gender equality initiative... Saiko Hashimoto says achieving a target of 40% women on the board is one of her top priorities. Hashimoto took over the Tokyo committee after her predecessor
0: resigned over Based
2: on some of the statistics, are the closest we've gotten so far To having an equal number of men and women. The
0: Associated Press, they're calling the Tokyo Games the quote, most gender equal Olympics.
2: Organizers of the Tokyo Olympics say this will be the most equal games in history, with women making up nearly half of all athletes competing over the next several weeks. We did it, ladies. Just under half. Misogyny is solved. If anything, I'd say it's time to dial it back in case the ladies get overrepresented, you know? I mean, you don't want it to just be the Women's Olympics.
1: (laughs) What do you think the Venn diagram overlap is between people who congratulate themselves on their progressive accomplishments and, I don't know, uh, reality?
2: I think that's like two distinct circles. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it reminds me of uh, the last Winter Olympics when the US went out of its way to congratulate itself on sending the most diverse winner team ever, which yay, but also it was like still 93% white. Um, and so like then, we are having a both and conversation. The games can be both the most gender balanced ever and have more work to do and have lingering inequities, and still have historical foundations built on antiquated but persistent gender norms and sexist assumptions by those in positions of power left unchecked in the room where it happens because IOC leadership hardly represents the gender and racial makeup of the games itself. So, yeah, both and. All right, um, what, do you, what do you mean? Well, let's recall that six months ago, women held just seven seats on the IOC's e-board for the Tokyo Games. That's seven seats out of 35. Okay, I'm not going to do fast math because I really can't right now. But seven seats out of 35 feels like not anywhere close to a number that would be equitable. And then, of course, the game's then president, Yuri Hashimoto, in February said women talk too much. And he was against giving them more seats and wanted to be careful about getting more seats on the board because he said they get emotional and they talk too much and they wouldn't be able to achieve anything in these boardrooms. That created a firestorm, one of many leading into these games. We saw him resign. We saw 10 seats added. Two other people stepped down. And that whole brouhaha is what got women's representation on the administrative level up to, wait for it, 42%. But the fact that six months ago, like it took all of that to even approach the 40s, that's what I mean when I say the progress of this game's much fanfare, but it feels more like watching, I don't know, paint dry or molasses or it's very slow is what I'm telling you here.
2: Yeah, yikes. I feel like also if I object to that, they're just going to be like, well, that's what a chatty woman would say. You're just like, <laughs> exactly. Qu- like there's no, it's a thing you can't win.
1: And that's what I was always thinking, because I was like, they added all these seeds and all the women taking them, though, are now like, how is that not in your mind? Like, am I talking too much? Am I proving Yori's point? Like, it's a mess. But I want to give you a brief history lesson here, because I think that a lot of what we're seeing today has these kind of foundational roots in the development of how women got to the Olympics in the first place. So we're talking about numbers of both athletes and in the boardrooms, but it's always been a fight, just like it is now. So have you ever heard of the Women's World Games? I
2: have a little bit from my understanding weren't they so popular that they essentially forced the Olympics to include women is that is that the right narrative
1: yeah absolutely Pre- precisely so if you remember we go way back at the beginning of the 20th century women had a few events in the Olympics, golf, archery, but there was a lot of tension around running in particular. And there was no intention to allow women into the Olympics for track. But women, like they do, don't, you know, they're chatty, right? They don't, they're not going to sit by and wait for an opportunity. And so they created their own games, led by Alice Millier from France, formed the Federation Sportive Feminine Internationale, or FSS. FI, and they hosted their own games, which they called the Women's Olympiad. At first, people were like, whatever, nobody's going to go to that. Who cares? Blah, blah, blah. Well, how wrong were they? Women from around the world started pouring into Paris to compete in these Women's World Games. At the time, it was still called the Olympiad. They were still using that language. Uh, And they were running track events there. And that was one of the big points, is that they wanted to have robust running opportunities. Now, as more and more women started to be interested in this, officials around the world, both in the Olympic committees and in independent nation state federations, started freaking out because all of the women were showing interest in running. And so they told FSFI like, okay, stop calling yourself the Olympics. Like you're you're threatening our stuff here. Like you have to chill. And they're like, fine, we will begrudgingly add you to the Olympics if you change the name of your games and kind of go away. And famously, the only events included when they were finally included in 1928 were the 100 meters, 800 and the four by one, plus high jump and discus. And at the end of the 800, when uh, a few women were winded, because who's not winded after running like the worst race in track and field, they were like, see? You're threatening your babies. This is why you're weak. This is why you can't do it. Um, And so it is a moment, though, in which you see women introduced and brought into the Olympics, but it's not like with open arms. That's the kind of framework I would think about when we're thinking about women's presence at the Olympics in general. It has always been pushing up against a door that seemingly is blocked or being pushed against from the other side.
2: Your description of track is so similar to what what the journey with gymnastics was like. When Olympic gymnastics was begrudgingly allowed to include women in 1936, it was never intended to be a parallel to the men's gymnastics, which had all of these strength events and power events. With women, it was never really intended to be an quote-unquote athletic sport in the first place. It was an exhibition, basically, of feminine, ladylike grace, maybe a little balance. They were allowed balance, and of course, their their figures, their body fitness. It was almost like a pageant. In recent years, women's gymnastics has become a little bit more like men's gymnastics in a lot of ways because it's become more athletic and acrobatic, but I wouldn't call it balanced by any stretch, and it's so much more complicated than that. Throughout the 20th century... As the athletes, because they were athletes, of women's gymnastics continued to become, you know, more athletic in spite of their governing body's objections, there was a huge jump in athleticism. The biggest one probably came in the decade of the 1980s through the early 1990s where uh, women started sort of doing twisting double flips on floor as standard, the uneven bars which started as a balance event, kept sort of inching further apart and giant swings and big release moves became that event's central components. And now, especially in the era of Simone Biles, whose acrobatics exceed the ability of many of her male counterparts, athleticism is the absolute center of women's gymnastics. But again, it's still not that simple. Here's a good example. On the men's side, with few exceptions, you almost never see skills being banned or devalued or undervalued because they're too dangerous. There has certainly not been a case in recent years of a male gymnast inventing a new skill and then that skill being assigned a lower-than-expected difficulty value to discourage it from being competed, as if the International Gymnastics Federation is its dad. And yet, one of the most reported gymnastics stories of the last few years is the punitive undervaluing of the Biles balance beam dismount which is the double twisting double back tuck the FIG explained that the move was too dangerous and they didn't want to encourage athletes to chuck it which is like gymnastics parlance for going for something outside your range but only Simone Biles could ever even dream of doing that dismount like athletes might chuck sometimes they don't chuck beam dismounts like you know if you chuck a beam dismount you're gonna die So this was hugely paternalistic on the FIG's part, being like, we know better than you, young lady. And it's just so insulting to think that a gymnast can't trust herself, you know, not to die in competition. It's hugely insulting. And so this idea that, you know, there's gender equality in gymnastics now, or even like women's gymnastics is more popular. And so it's even better. And there's no sexism in it. I would just like absolutely beg to differ.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so ridiculous. And I think one of the things that, you know, those examples point us to is that once you do somehow slinky in and slide into that door, the restrictions at the Olympic, at the elite levels in many of these sports, whether it's literally how things are scored, what people wear, or even what their natural body makeup is, right? So in the 60s, you have gender verification tests starting, Which at the time, the science and tech of it was literally parading in front of a medical board that would poke and prod you and decide if you were sufficiently woman enough and then give you a card, literally a card like a driver's license that you had to carry around the game into the 90s. And the uniforms remain remarkably consistent, too. And if you remember when boxing was added to the games in 2012, uh, officials wanted to have women boxers wear skirts. The reasoning, because how else would anybody tell that they are women? (laughs) Just the, I can't even deal with half of this stuff. Um, As we move into the 2012, 2016 cycles, of course, you also have beach volleyball being pressured to change its dress code um, because before they were forced to wear bikinis or bodysuits and there was a huge push there, especially when we're talking about just the policing of what people wear in general. It's never just one thing. This games alone, we've had people reprimanded because their shorts are too short. The handball teams told that it's not short enough. My co-host Shireen Ahmed is is really right on this and pointing out that this is about control of bodies because we see this with the hijab ban, right? Which is about covering. (laughs) And then we see it with uniforms. So it's like, you can't do anything. You can't wear anything, right? If you have autonomy, it's always going to come under fire. And that's what we've seen. Um, And so what we have is, Uh, is this like hyper policing of women when they do get to the Olympic games. And that has had continuity right up until this pandemic games. Uh, and so we've seen that not only with handball uniforms, like I mentioned, but with things like swim caps, where the Afro swim cap designed to hold natural hair, specifically by Black Olympians, was denied uh, uh, being acceptable use, which is ridiculous because it's not competitive advantage to put your hair up. And sorry, not everybody's hair is thin and fits under a swimming cap. Like, these are the things that we are still seeing in operation at these so-called gender balance games.
2: Yeah, I have actually never in my entire somewhat long life of watching the Olympics heard of any man's uniform having a violation. It's possible I'm just not watching for it. But it's interesting because of all with all of its problems, gymnastics, the uniform regulations are actually kind of progressive. And they have become more so in the last few years. They're allowed to wear a uniform that covers their head for religious reasons, although no one competing internationally currently does. And they're also allowed to wear a uniform that covers their legs. And recently, the German squad has started competing exclusively in unitards, which is different than the sort of classic gymnastic leotard, which has the sort of cutout legs and you see the you see their muscly legs and stuff. The Germans are taking a, a stand basically against... They call it sexualization, which is a little bit... It's like a little bit reductive, but in the original German, it doesn't seem quite as much. But basically what they're saying is... Some gymnasts get really uncomfortable when they're wearing leotards either because of their period or just because they don't want their crotch so prominent or because leotards cause wedgies all the time and every single gymnastics skill in the entire world causes a wedgie and gymnasts spend so much of their time taking their wedgies out of their butts and they just don't want to deal with that anymore and they think that every gymnast should be able to wear what she feels the most comfortable in. And this is amazing, but they're the only ones doing it. No one has followed suit yet. And it's, you know, they're not like a a top team. They didn't make the final. It's a statement. It's a wonderful statement. But like, I would like to see an athlete from every high profile team rocking a unitard out there too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, And I think that these are the type of things, right, that makes the celebrations of these like, gender-balanced games feel so insufficient. It's hard to feel like those words are sufficient when you have mothers saying, hey, we need to bring our children to the games because we're nursing them, right? We are literally nursing them and you're making them stay at home. And that last, basically right before the games. They reversed and said, okay, fine. If you're nursing, you can bring your kids. But as a Spanish swimmer pointed out, she still left her child, child at home. Why? Because they made them house at a completely different location. So for her to go and actually logistically nurse her child meant that she would have to leave the Olympic Village, putting her team and herself at risk for COVID because she's breaking the bubble, to go nurse multiple times a day. That, that's not sufficient. And that is the stuff. That's the structural stuff that makes those words ring hollow. Things can't be applauded for being all equitable for women if Black women can't swim with their natural hair in caps that work for them, when women with natural and and different testosterone levels have been banned entirely and mostly from the global South, which is quite honestly the other reason why I have no desire to sit here and think about anything being most equal in terms of gender when we're still operating on the strictest of binaries. It's yet another both and, I suppose, but the and is important, not just to point out these gaps or the hypocrisy, but also because it compels us to consider what comes next. How do you finish that sentence? Uh, And is also a gateway to the future, to thinking through further possibilities. And that is the conversation we will have in just a second. We're going to take a break here, but if you're enjoying The Waves, we would love it if you would like and subscribe to The Waves wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And if you want to hear more from Amira and myself on another topic, Check out our Waves Plus segment, Gateway Feminism, where today Amira and I talk about one thing that helped make us feminist. I'll be talking about deodorant, and Amira will be talking about the NFL.
1: So now we're talking about what comes next. What comes after that and? Uh, if we know that there is still this huge distance to go in terms of gender balance or anything looking like equitable circumstances, both racially and in, about gender in the Olympics, what work is there to do? Well, there's many brilliant folks and organizations that are hard at work at reforming the Olympics. But what if what comes next is, well, nothing? If this is the best that the Olympics can do, is it worth doing it all? The pandemic games certainly have amplified these issues, but anti-Olympic organizers such as Nolympics Olympics have been cautioning about this for years. They've been mobilizing on the ground in Rio, in L.A., in Tokyo to talk about the harm and destruction that usually follows the Olympics. And then besides from organizers and protesters outside of the games, internally, there's also you know, feelings, especially in the pandemic, that are like ethically, like, should we be watching this? Like, what does it compel? There was a clip of an Australian swimming coach I'm so excited that his athlete had won that he ripped off his mask and he's running around and he's shaking and dry humping the, the rail. And the, the damn uh, organizer, the volunteer, is like trying to prevent him from doing this. And so many responses to that video were like, aha, sports, yeah. And it's like, yo, like, what would he have done if she had lost, right? Like, of course, the women's uh, gymnastics final, we saw Simone Biles. Really shockingly pull out, and there's this conversation already happening that was about mental toughness and what you push through, and a lot of throwbacks to thinking about Carrie Stuart. And it's like, no, 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 like we are so conditioned within sports to say push yourself to a breaking point mentally and physically in the name of of gold, in the name of competition, in the name of this. And I don't know, like if it's the pandemic or or what or maturity, I don't know, but. It's harder to watch. It's harder to say, like, participate in even as a fan. And yet, it's the Olympics. It's seductive. And it draws even the anti-sports person in. And so I know that I might feel icky watching one thing and then all of a sudden find an unknown athlete in an unknown sport at two in the morning and be completely encaptured by it. (laughs) In the words of Big Sean, I think, don't save her. She don't want to be saved. Rebecca, is it time to let go of the Olympics?
2: Well, you know, I had a much more confident answer to that before the women's team gymnastics final happened. And as you said, Simone had a sort of midair crisis in the middle of her vault, and she kind of balked it a little bit. And then she pulled out of the rest of the competition. And she has told the press, she has said, my head wasn't right. I was going to hurt myself. I made that decision for myself. And I cannot help but think that if, like, the greatest gymnast the world has ever known has decided that the Olympics are not, like, she's not going to carry Strug it. And by the way, Carrie Strug didn't need to do that vault to win, and she shouldn't have had to do that vault. The U.S. had the scores to win, and by the double way, winning's not really that important. And so I think that, like, if Simone can nope out of the Olympics... Simone, the face of the Olympics, if she can nope out, I feel like we should all be noping out too. But even before that, this is something I thought about so much when the 2020 games were postponed. I thought, you know, all those anti-Olympic people have such a great point. The cities are always decimated. It's always such a junk show. But then selfishly I thought, oh God, if there's no 2020 Olympics and there just like isn't an Olympics, What is that going to do to the sport of gymnastics? What is that going to do to track and field and all the sports that depend on these so-called four-year fans, you know, people who will kind of only tune in during the Olympics for TV ratings and the TV ratings lead to ad revenue and the ad revenue leads to sponsorships, et cetera, et cetera, ad infinitum. What is it going to do to these athletes if there's no Olympics? Yes, there's a world championships for track and gym and just about everything, And those events are watched religiously by their sports super fans, but the audience doesn't even remotely compare. You know, four-year fans exist completely due to this idea that the whole world comes together to compete and watch. And it's this beautiful celebration of sportspersonship and togetherness, etc. And then I got to thinking, I don't know, I feel like maybe the Olympics, like the world has grown out of them the entire idea of the whole world you know watching the same thing at the same time is a relic that is a relic of the tv age like who even watches tv now except you know maybe my mom even she dvr stuff and the sort of continuous doping scandals from around the sports world are also a great reminder that like a lot of countries don't really care about the sports personship and the togetherness you know what they want to do is when
1: yeah. And I mean, and what the IOC wants to do is try to profit, right? Like, you know, this is why IOC official last year was holding fast on not canceling the games as the pandemic raged, because uh, uh, literally, they made the argument that <laughs> one official said, the, the flames of the Olympic torch would extinguish COVID, right? It's why they cling to the site, like this is utopian, apolitical site, this togetherness, etc., which is we know is is not true, right? It's it's obviously a very hyper political space, and there's all of these concerns, like you mentioned, and beyond. And I think that, you know, part of that calculation when you when you talk about Simone, you know, saying nope, right, is also I couldn't stop feeling the weight that she's carrying, and I and I feel this very keenly, especially about Black women, who symbolically carry so much at the Olympic stages and have historically. Uh, Naomi Osaka, of course, like lit the torch. She was like the last torchbearer in Japan, you know, the darling of the games. And she also, you know, we're recording this on Tuesday. There's a lot that will also happen with many other sports and narratives. But the day we're recording this, we saw Naomi Osaka exit the Olympic Games after playing a really not great match. Her forehand was all over the place. And of course, we saw what happened with Simone and. I don't know about you. I I cried all morning and I cried because I can only imagine the weight that they're carrying Um, in part because in my conversations with black women athletes across multiple sports from rugby to volleyball, to track, to field um, water polo across the sports, there is this articulation of that burden, that symbolic burden. And it's not just the names we know, even though that's more visible and comes with things, but One of the things that they talk about is like it's also a burden familiar to black women who are teachers or writers or cafeteria workers.
2: You know, all of these women athletes and especially these incredible black women athletes, they have this voracious fan base. But the fan base, you know, it brings support, but oftentimes it also brings expectation and this sense of entitlement. Like, you know, we as fans are entitled to the incredible bodily labor of these women and these black women. And the fact is, they don't owe us anything. They don't owe anyone anything. And that's why I think what Simone did on Tuesday morning was such an incredible feat. Because even though she's the face of the games, and she felt like the whole games were on her shoulders, she understood in that moment that she lost sight of where she was midair in that vault, she realized I'm the only one who can take this weight off my shoulders. There might be consequences to it because the structure isn't in place to support me, but no one is gonna take this off my shoulders. Everyone feels entitled to my body, to me possibly getting injured, to me possibly breaking my neck and dying, and I'm not gonna do it. And what I would like to see is a new structure that's just a full new paradigm where we do not feel entitled to the sacrifices of these athletes with almost nothing in exchange.
1: Watching Naomi and watching Simone and this pressure to be great and this pressure to reveal things and talk to the press and this pressure to do all of this stuff, to see them set boundaries, to see Naomi saying, all right, I don't have to go to the slam, to see Simone saying, I don't need to do this. And the thing that I think about as much as like that moment it both inspires me and it and it it makes me all emotional but i think about the people who don't have the platform or that financial backing that those women have to make those decisions to opt out and so when you talk rebecca about like what happens to these olympic sports i think that this is really the point Right. I'm thinking about the inability to imagine other possibilities and what it requires to actually change the structure of how we do things. Right. What if we actually built a robust professional track apparatus so that we weren't reliant on the Olympics? What if we supported gymnastics in various ways that made the Olympics less, you know, like a a slam that Naomi can pull out of because she has other options. We create more revenue opportunities that don't involve taking your clothes off for something or being marketable and, you know, which is usually racialized in certain ways. And that's why I think it's so important to remember the stories of the Women's World Games that we started with, for instance, because this was a model of Olympic competition um, that was different and our current wasn't inevitable. And even now with the changes we're seeing in what sports are offered or how they will be played, that's changing. But this is going to require big ideas and people in power to stop prioritizing money. If profit is not the end goal, does it become easier to think about ideas like Mina Kimes just offered like the Olympic Island? Like what if we built a uh, apparatus there and every four years a host nation just was in charge of like planning the party there and we stopped displacing people. What happens if we build a robust childcare structure, Olympic village daycare, if you will, these are the ideas that like actually require us to like get together. This is the togetherness that it requires where we can really upend everything we think we know about the Olympics to maybe envision another possibility to fill out a sentence after that. And that isn't one that we've even thought of yet. Before we head out, we want to give some recommendations. Rebecca, what are you loving right now?
2: Well, in the Olympics, gymnastics wise, I am rooting for a Chinese gymnast named Guan Chenchen. Uh, She is a beam specialist and she comes from another plane of existence. She has literally the most difficult routine that anybody's competing in the Olympics right now. And she's just beautiful. I also recommend when you're done listening to every single episode, the waves has ever recorded another podcast called blind landing. It's a short limited serial podcast, and it tells you the secret story of a disastrous equipment error that turned the women's all around gymnastics competition in the 2000 Sydney Olympics
1: upside down. I I have vague memories of it. I want to shout out two athletes I want to shout out Anna Cockrell a 400 meter hurdler uh, a woman I've had the pleasure of, of being on panels with and working with Anna finished up at her grad work at USC while helping to organize black student athletes there and forming organizations that propelled USC to like take accountability in, in communities surrounding the university and to account for Black Lives Matter and and really raising the, the mantle of like black trans women as well it was she's tremendous um, she's talked a lot about mental health. She's included in the piece I wrote for Slate where black women athletes are talking about mental health and preparation in the games. And I just want to shout out Anna because I'm so proud of her and I think that her work on and off the track should be so commended. I also want to shout out Cuban athlete Adelisa Ortiz you might remember her for her very bright braids in Rio Uh, she won the gold before Rio won the silver in Rio she's in judo Um, and I want to shout her out because many of the Cuban athletes obviously have been navigating unrest in in Cuba around the government's handling of COVID-19 Ortiz said as she left that she will fight convinced of what it means to be be Cuban they will do it with honor Um, and to values that distinguish them and I just wanted to shout both of those athletes who I find tremendous on and off their athletic competitions out and my recommendation I honestly just want to talk about Ted Lasso all the time if you haven't watched the show Ted Lasso the second season just started you have more than enough time to catch up it is my feel-good show from the past year but in particular for the Waves audience it also does some wondrous things with female friendships in it that I think that we just don't see too often. I think the first few episodes I was just waiting for rivalry and competition and backstab and all these things I'm kind of primed and used to and it just wasn't. There's a great piece up by Leah Johnson right now on Bitch Media that expands on this point some more. So I would say in the words of Ted Lasso, my last kind of parting thing is, you know, to Naomi, to Simone, to these athletes, I would say, do you know what the most uh, happiest animal in the world is? And it's a goldfish because it has such a short memory. And so, in the words of Ted Lasso, be a goldfish. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Susan Matthews is our editorial director, with June Thomas providing oversight and moral support. If you like the show, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus, Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com/thewavesplus.
2: We'd also love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves@slate.com.
1: The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place.
2: There's never a good time for your furnace or air conditioner to stop working.
0: But we're honored that for the past 100 years, Atlas Butler customers have relied on us the night before Thanksgiving, the day before their wedding, and even Christmas morning for fast, convenient service. Your trust means everything. Call today, get it fixed today. That's our pledge to you.